0: Community is what it's all about, and I think it's community that helps most around establishing well-being and good health and um, happiness.
1: everyone. Welcome back to Let It Out with Katie Dalebout. That is me, your host of this podcast. I love hosting this podcast so much. I consider myself an enthusiast who just can't shut up about the things that I love. And so I share them on my podcast. Like today's guest, Dr. Linda Bacon. She is an academic. She is one of the smartest people I've ever talked to in my life. And I'm so happy that I was able to have her on the show because her books, um, Health at Every Size, and her most recent book, Body Respect, are really, really amazing reads and easy to read, and so helpful when it comes to body image and health. And you, we're going to get into a lot of those topics today in this episode. But I just actually re-listened to it right before I'm recording this this intro right now, and I recorded this episode a while back, so you'll hear. A few Wellness Wonderland, which is the name, the previous name of my podcast, references. Like I asked her my old final question, which is, you know, what does living in a Wellness Wonderland mean to you? And I'm so glad that I did ask this to Linda Bacon because, as you heard in the intro quote, that was her speaking. She defines Wellness Wonderland as beautiful community. And that's really how I'm defining it in my life right now. It's not about green juice and yoga and how fit your body can be. Although green juice and yoga are great, it's about the people. It's about making your life as a whole really beautiful, not just your physical body. And we get into that and it's just so amazing to hear from her. But anyway, so I recorded this, like I said, a couple months ago and I was a little bit worried. I didn't really remember the conversation as clearly because it was a while ago and I was worried it might be Boring or academic because of the topic, and I just re-listened to it, like I said, and I it came back to me how amazing the conversation was. It's not boring at all. It's so fascinating, and I learned so much from this conversation back when I had it that has impacted my life since, and in such a beautiful way that I didn't even realize necessarily. So there's this moment in the middle where I just really really encourage you guys to listen all the way through obviously to this episode but about 20 minutes in she really blows my mind with a story about an experience she had with a friend that talks about racism and sizeism and it's just a very very fascinating important story i want everyone to hear it was very helpful for me and we talk about weight obviously how weight isn't in your control we talk about discrimination We talk about how we're biologically wired to get pleasure from food and how pleasure is meant to support us in living well. And if we don't get pleasure, we're not fully living. We talk about that in relation to sugar and sugar when it comes to intuitive eating and what our body's relationship to sugar and food is and just how smart our bodies are we get into just so many fascinating things I share a lot over this conversation about my own body image my own size my own relationship to the size of my body and how that's changed over the years and how it's changed recently we get into that some may argue I overshare there's a lot of sharing this was Linda's Dr. Linda Bacon's sixth interview of the day, and she was a champ. There's this like goofy, funny moment right at the end that is just very sweet, and I just think speaks to both of our personalities. And yeah, so stick around for that. It was just a great conversation. So thank you to Dr. Bacon for coming on the podcast. Be sure to tweet at her and let her know that you heard the episode and that you liked it. So Anyway, stick around for that. Also, at the end of the episode, there is a mini-interview with a really cool lady. Her name is Anne-Sophie Reinhard, and she is all the way in Germany and a really cool woman who is the mini-interview sponsor of the podcast, and we talk for about 10 minutes about body image, and it's a great conversation that the supplement with this particular topic that we're talking about i thought worked really well so that is at the end of this episode so stick around for that and then i will let you guys know who's coming up on the show next week so thank you to everyone who came out in chicago it was so great to meet everyone i love that city and i will be in toronto the first weekend of august and i'm actually doing a live episode of this podcast so, if you like listening to the podcast recorded, I'm sure you're going to love to listen to it live, right? Definitely. So, on August 6th, I will be doing a live podcast episode with special guests the healthy Maven, Davida, and Nikki, who is Health Nut Nutrition on YouTube. I love them. They're very great friends of mine, and I will be hosting them on the podcast live. There will be snacks. There will be us. There will be books. It will be a really fun time. Special guests who will also be there, I believe. So just make sure you sign up. Get tickets. The tickets go to support an organization that is very important to me, friend of the podcast. I'm going to be having the founder of the organization, Real Girl, on the podcast coming up. And I've already had on Val, who is um, a great friend of mine, who introduced me to Real Girl. She works with the organization. And I was actually trained to be an instructor of Real Girl while I was in L.A. So they are this organization that teaches young girls about basically everything I talk about on this podcast. But it's what, what I had to teach myself in my early 20s, and I wish that I would have known when I was, you know, 8, 9, 10, 14, right? So what the organization is really centered around is the fact that girls' self-esteem peaks at age nine and then plummets after that. So they teach them about feminism and their period and body image and relationships and friendships and mean girls. And I'm going to talk really fast about because I'm not, this is not even what this episode is about, but I just wanted to mention that that's organization that the ticket sales for my event in Toronto will be supporting anyway buy a ticket to the event in Toronto the link to that will be in the show notes the time the information and that's the next place that I'll be oh actually before that I'm speaking at a yoga festival that is next weekend And that is here in Michigan. It's called Barefoot and Free. My friend Beth is putting it on. And if you remember the episode with Drought, my good friends that own the juice company, she is a Drought sister. She's a sister-in-law. So it's going to be great. And I'm going to be there. I'm speaking. So... Enjoy this episode with Linda Bacon. If you like it, please share it with a friend. It's a really important topic, so please send it to anyone who you think needs it. And please leave a review on iTunes if this podcast means anything to you. It helps me out a ton. Please subscribe. Make sure you're on my newsletter list. Make sure you're in the Facebook squad. We're over 700 people in there somehow, which is amazing. And I would love everyone who downloads the podcast to be in there because that is there are more people than that. So that would be super cool. I love you guys. I think you're awesome. And I will talk to you soon. Enjoy Dr. Linda Bacon. welcome back everyone to the wellness wonderland radio we're going to get right into it but i'm so honored to be speaking with dr linda bacon she is a professor researcher author of the groundbreaking books health at every size and body respect and she's changing lives all over the world with her teaching her research her writing her transformational workshops and seminars and she's just awesome. Dr. Bacon combines academic expertise and compassionate clinical experience to bring together scientific research and practical application. She's so cool, and we're going to talk all about her work, so I'm so excited. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Bacon.
0: That's such a sweet intro, Katie. Thank you. I'm I'm glad to be here. It'll be fun.
1: Yeah, for sure. So let's start um, right at the beginning with zooming the lens back a bit, and I know that you are – amazingly well-educated with so many different master's degrees and have such an education in this field, but I'd love to know why you chose to go into this and more about your story and how you came to this work and and got to where you are.
0: Sure, Katie. Um, I imagine people out there have this image of me of being a compassionate, caring person, wanting to change the world, and that's why I got into this work. And nothing could be further from the truth. Really, the only reason I got into this work was um, it was really a journey to save myself. I know that um, food, eating, weight issues were just so, so painful for me. And it was so hard for me to feel comfortable in my own body that um, I ended up with an eating disorder and, you know, bouncing back and forth in my weight all the time and feeling terrible about my body and so i started to study these issues basically just trying to save myself and i suppose in the process i ended up looking at these issues related to weight from a lot of different disciplines because um i just discovered that you know like initially i started through looking at psychology and there was so much that i gleaned from that but it didn't solve my problem on its own And then I realized, too, that there was that other component, things around exercise that I wasn't understanding. And it gave me a very different framing. And then looking at the endocrinology and the physiology and the nutrition, all of these things had to come together for me. So it did mean I got a lot, a lot of education along the way. And the good news is I came out feeling um, better for it, that I now um, can really enjoy and appreciate my body and enjoy food again, find pleasure in it. And I realized that all along the way, I got a lot of valuable stuff that I want to share with other people and see if I can save other people from going through that kind of pain that I went through.
1: That's fantastic. And it mirrors my story a lot too, you know, with the the eating disorder and trying to heal myself and now sharing the work that I do now with um, the podcast and, and the work that I do as well. You know, I love the way that you said that, you know, a lot of times we come to this work by our own struggles and sharing how we heal those with, with the world once we've figured something out for ourselves. So that's, that's way cool. So your degrees are in psychology and exercise, um, physiology, is that right? And nutrition as well? Um,
0: psychology, um, exercise physiology. And then the third, my PhD is actually in physiology with a nutrition
1: emphasis, Very cool. So I just remember hearing that and thinking, wow, she really covers all the bases to make her such a perfect expert in this. So I'd love if you could talk a bit up top about... Just defining in your own words what Health at Every Size is. I know that's a, a major movement that you're obviously a huge part of. It's the title of your book. And for people listening who may not be familiar, this might be a radical concept for people. Some people might have some idea um, from following my work a little bit. But um, I'd love it if you could just define Health at Every Size and really open people up to what it is.
0: Sure. Health at Every Size is all about just helping us to treat bodies with respect, Um, and it's encouraging us to take the emphasis off of weight and to put the emphasis on helping people to just enjoy and appreciate being in their bodies, and then um, that frees them up to take good care of themselves. And so part of Health at Every Size then requires that we be critical thinkers, that we look critically at the information that we've been fed about weight and our bodies, and um, also that we develop critical awareness of our own bodies and learn how to trust them. And I think in the old paradigm, we've been taught that they're supposed we're supposed to follow all of these rules about how to eat and what to eat. And in Health at Every Size, we throw all that stuff out and we... Look more towards critical awareness of our own bodies and internal regulation and all those great messages that we get that can help us to make good choices around eating and enjoy food again. So in a nutshell, I would say that the whole health at every size movement. is just all about helping us to respect our bodies and develop better critical awareness
1: cool so that sounds really beautiful and nice and for for people listening they're probably like yeah that's that sounds really nice but something that I want to emphasize for people who haven't read your book and I'd love if you can um, speak about this that there's a lot of myths around diet and weight especially in our culture and this this diet culture that we that we live in that you're not healthy unless you look a certain way or weigh a certain amount and that not only isn't true just from from your work, but proven in, in your research. There's so much research behind all of this, and, and that's what really stands behind this Health at Every Size movement. So I was hoping that you could talk a bit about some of the research, and especially I think this this isn't even your, in your book. I just heard you speak about this in another interview where you discuss um, the BMI and how I think you were in school when they were – lowering the BMI to to say that you were healthy, and you told a great story about that. I was wondering if you could tell that here as well.
0: Sure. Yeah. Well, that story is important to me because it really marks the turning point in my career. I remember it so clearly. It was June of 1998 when about 29 million Americans went to bed in normal, healthy bodies (laughs) And they woke up the next morning fat with a medical diagnosis that there was something wrong with them and that they were prescribed weight loss as the solution now of course it's not that everybody gained weight overnight it was because the government lowered the bmi standards so now all of these people that had been considered to be normal weight suddenly were considered to be overweight or obese and um, it was pretty dramatic. And of course, you could imagine that a lot of people stood to make money off of this. Think about the pharmaceutical companies that had weight loss drugs, because now suddenly doctors were mandated to send a lot more people to get um, weight loss treatments, including pharma- pharmaceuticals, um, as a solution. Um, And it was fascinating to me because it was at the time that I was heavily involved in looking at the whole issue of weight and health for my dissertation. And I was astounded because my reading of all of the literature was that, if anything, we should be majorly raising the BMI standards, not lowering them. So I was so shocked that the government did this that I looked over to find out who was involved in making this recommendation to the government um, you know and why did they do it and I found out that one of the important task forces that was involved in the recommendation was um, the national institution I'm sorry the National Institute of Health um, obesity task force and I happened to know somebody who was on the task force so I called her and I asked her um, why and I, and she you know she picked up the phone and she just laughed and she said i was waiting for your phone call i knew this was going to be coming um and the reason she knew is because she was my dissertation advisor and she'd been guiding me in my study of the literature for quite some time and she said you know look i'm supposed to be training you so that you can be on committees like this in the future and that you can answer questions like this so i want you to pretend that you are on the committee Um, in my stead, and that you had to figure out what's the most important evidence to examine in setting BMI standards, and then evaluate that evidence, come up with your conclusion. So I did that, and it wasn't too hard, because I'd already been looking at the research for quite a while, and all of the research was showing me, again, that we should majorly raise the standards. So I put it all into writing, and I give it to her, and she laughs, and she basically said, you know what? this is exactly what we found, um, you know, brilliant work. And I said, but I don't get it because the government did the exact opposite. And she said, sure. Well, we came to this conclusion and we were basically told that that's inconsistent with world standards and, um, that we need to bring our policy so that we're consistent with what other countries are doing. So in the end, we basically decided to throw out the evidence and, um, raise the standards. And I was just kind of shocked to know that this is how our government makes such an important health recommendation. And it was all really about politics. And it really was from that point on that I knew that something that there was something very wrong with how we looked at the whole weight issue. And that I had to be a critical thinker. And Examine all the conclusions instead of just buying what's currently accepted in the field. And as an interesting side note to that, I also got curious as to why the world standards were so off. So So the next thing that I did was I got into my investigative journalist mode and I contacted the World Health Organization and asked them who they relied on to come up with the standards that they had established. And they told me that the organization was the International Obesity Task Force, which I at the time had never heard of. But I did a little research to find out who they were. And what I found out was that they were a privately funded organization and that the two largest funders were the only two drug companies that had weight loss drugs on the market. So in other words, it's the pharmaceutical industry that wrote the current BMI standards that we're all using today. And, of course, it's been of great financial benefit to them.
1: Oh, man. So hearing that story and, and so many other things like that, um, which just completely proves that, like, the, the BMI index is really useless when it comes to a marker of, of our health. Would, would you agree with that?
0: Yes, I would. In fact, I would say worse than useless. It's really quite damaging that um, it unnecessarily stigmatizes people. Um, So it, you know, by virtue of having this BMI number, you, you assign people into disease categories. When we know that there are a lot of people that are in those categories called overweight and obese that don't have any disease and that will live long, healthy lives.
1: So... Um, right, and then mentally they end up manifesting more disease because they of all of these social things that happen to them and cultural discrimination that could happen to them. It it can that can be mentally so damaging. Sure,
0: in fact, there's even been research that's come out recently that shows that people who experience more weight stigma in the world have. Um, Low, have increased mortality rates, meaning they die younger. Um, and they've been able to control for a lot of other factors, you know, to know that um, it's not about their weight itself, but it's about the amount of stigma that they experience in their lives that actually is playing a role in the decreased longevity. It's really quite scary. So I think it's important that we throw out BMI as an indicator. And um, it's certainly, what what we definitely know about health is that health behaviors affect health. And we can support everybody in developing good health behaviors regardless of what they weigh. We don't have to use weight as the mediator to get there.
1: Right. So how do you, because hearing stories like that and hearing, you um, a lot of these very chilling studies that disprove and are, are so counterculture to what is so mainstream right now. Um, could you talk about, you know, like how do you go on and and keep your passion with this and not get, you know, really down about this? Because I tend to, you know, feel feel really down about things sometimes where I feel like, you know, and this, this is my question, I guess, the, there's this phenomenon right now where, health and almost dieting or controlling your weight or trying to seem like a moral obligation and you're almost made wrong by society or judged by society if you're actively not trying to control your weight or or practicing health and wellness practices um it's it's just becoming so prevalent so and it can really you know seem so ex- wellness practices are great in themselves but they can seem so exclusive and not available to people based on size and weight. And I was wondering if you could talk about, you know, what, if anything, we can do to combat this exclusivity that those practices have, and also, you know, not be so down about the fact that this this is kind of becoming this like polarizing issue, and um, it should it should really be more inclusive. Sorry, that was kind of like a lot of questions, but. Hopefully you get that. (laughs) Well, one thing
0: I also like to to always keep aware of is how um, buying into that belief system is such a prison for people. It's so painful to have to watch your calories all the time, to feel like um, exercise is your punishment for weighing too much. And when people get introduced to the idea that they'll do a much more effective job at managing their health if they let go of those ideas, if they learn to honor pleasure and eat what they want, when they want, um, if they learn to find enjoyable ways of being in their body, if they make it about fun, pleasure, that they they stand a much, much better job of actually adopting better health behaviors and improving their health. So there's a lot of celebration that comes from the transition to a health at every size approach. You know, you don't have to be in that whole prison of deprivation and dieting. And um, what we also know from the research is it's much more effective for people, that people are are not only um, finding that it's more fun, it's easier to be around food, but they're much more successful in adopting better health behaviors than they were when they were fighting themselves all the time. So I think there's also incredible celebration that can come from, um, and freedom that can come from adopting a health at every size approach.
1: Yeah. So one thing you know that that I'm curious about is you know what are people's biggest resistance to your work and to health at every size and then also how do you handle you know the online haters or the people who maybe bash health at every size how do you keep going with your passion and and not let it get to you when there there are people who not only don't agree but usually when people I think when people don't agree it's probably to me that they're not or they're really stuck in weight loss or dieting as as something that they promote or they want to do, um, just simply for the fact that they haven't really immersed themselves in your work or they haven't actually taken the time to look at the research or read the books or um, they just don't really understand. How do you deal with that and how do you um, not let it get to you, kind of? Yeah.
0: Well, sure. I've got all kinds of strategies I've developed to kind of be resilient in this world. Um, And probably the biggest one is finding community, that there are so many people that have more of a body positive approach and surrounding myself with people like that and um, getting support from other people is really, really helpful. And it gives me a, a sense of safety and perspective. And it's also been interesting, too, to. Remember my own history. I mean, there was a time that I bought into all of those myths too. There was a time that I really believed that dieting was the answer. And I can have compassion for why people would believe those things. I mean, we're taught that 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 you're well educated if you know how to diet right. You know, that's what that this is how dietitians are trained and they're considered to be better in their field if they teach weight management issues right so i can understand you know all the reasons why people buy into all the myths it's it's what they've been exposed to and it's what gives them power and prestige in the world and helps them to advance in careers and i could also understand too that believing in diets Gives people some sense of hope that they can break away from all of the pain involved in not fitting in, right? If if you're if you if you have a heavy body, for example, and somebody tells you that all you have to do is lose weight and everybody's going to think you're attractive and you know you'll you'll find a, a mate and you'll get better jobs and get more respect in the world right so you can understand why they would cling to dieting if it's supposed to offer them all of those great rewards because that discrimination is real right yeah so um and for a lot of people that there's concern that if they don't diet then what that means is they're giving up on any possibility of happiness because they've got it so caught up in their mind that the only way to be happy is to be thin. And so I get, I, you know, I have a lot of empathy for why people would cling to that. Um, so I can certainly have compassion for why people would be resistant to this because they view it as giving up hope. But I think what it takes is reframing it and recognizing that diets don't actually provide you with hope. It's false hope. That, in fact, what we know is that there is plenty of hope for a happier life. And the happier life comes from going after what you want directly instead of thinking that weight loss is going to be necessary to get you all of those things you're looking for. So if you're looking to feel more attractive in the world, there's plenty of ways that you can achieve that rather than through weight loss. And if you get it only through weight loss, it's gonna feel pretty hollow anyway. You're not gonna feel seen and valued for who you are. But there's plenty of ways to feel more attractive in the world um, without needing to diet to get there.
1: Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. I think one of the things that that really stands out to me is, you know, we don't want to be thin. We just want what we think thinness brings us, like you said, and um, and and that's we can go after that thing directly, and that's that's really fantastic. I think um, the one thing that I think would be worth speaking about here though is thin privilege and that that is a real thing and people are discriminated every day on the basis of size and weight and you address this a bit in health at every size and how your own thin privilege you know gives you certain advantages and in, in sharing this work even um, but I would love if you could talk about that concept directly and um, like like I said there you know how your own thin privilege if you think it's effective or helpful in you getting this information out there and do you think that it would be received differently if you were in a different body type?
0: Yeah, I'm very clear that one of the reasons I have as big of a platform that I do is because I'm thinner and therefore people see me as more credible in talking about weight issues. And um, that's really unfortunate because I know that there are a lot of people that are in larger bodies that are just as articulate on these issues, um, but aren't given as big of a platform or as much credibility. Um, Instead, they're told that they're just trying to rationalize their weight. Um, And that's really unfortunate. And I think that that's one of the reasons why I feel like it's so important for me to speak out on these issues because, um, people can hear it better. Well, I mean, I don't, I want to support heavier people in getting a platform as well. Right. But I also feel like, um, you know, I get so many advantages through being thinner, even though I don't want those advantages, that it's my obligation to kind of use all of that privilege to try to fight against fat oppression. You know, I, I had an experience with a friend of mine recently that was really quite powerful for me. And um, my friend is African-American and dark-skinned, and the two of us were shopping together in a store. And we went to different departments and I was noticing that the um, someone that worked in the store was following her around everywhere that she went and nobody was paying attention to me. And it was really clear that this issue was about racism and that they didn't trust my friend in the store. And when the two of us left the store, my friend was practically in tears about just how painful it was to feel that distrust. Um, You know, and I thought about, like, how I could be helpful for my friend, and clearly one of the things that she could have done is, like, she could go bleach her skin, and she probably would get treated much better in stores, but certainly that wasn't the advice that I gave her, Um, that all I could do for her was just be compassionate and to help her to see that I get that. You know, the problem is in our culture. She shouldn't have been treated that way. Um, The problem is not in her. And I think that we have to have that same framing that, yeah, um, it is a lot harder to be in a larger body in this world. Um, But that doesn't mean that changing your body is the solution. It means naming the problem, that the problem is outside in a culture that doesn't... um, treat people fairly and equitably and that we need to change the culture not the individual because if our focus is on the individual we're telling them that there's something wrong with them and there isn't there's something wrong with the culture that doesn't treat us all fairly so I think that we have to keep that in mind around weight issues that yeah it is going to be harder to live in a fatter body and so that means that heavier people are going to have to develop the skills at what we call stigma management, you know, the, you know, to figure out the challenges of how you live in a world that doesn't treat you so well. And at the same time, we've got to put our emphasis on making this a fairer world so that everybody has equal opportunity and, you know, gets treated equitably. But certainly we know that changing your body, is not the answer.
1: Wow, Dr. Bacon, that story with your friend is such a fantastic example of this that really just, I was already on board, but like if I hadn't been, that would have just really, it really illustrated this exact concept of of like when you say it that way, yeah, she could bleach her skin, it seems, like, so absurd, but all the time we're doing – we're telling people the exact same thing, basically, which is, like, you could just lose weight to receive thin privilege, but, like, that's not the issue. The issue is the society at large. So it's just a fabulous example, and thank you so much for sharing that.
0: Sure. And I think, too, Katie, that it would be helpful, too, to address the whole myth that we have control over our weight. Yeah. Go because for it. Think- Yeah. Sure, because I think that we don't have nearly the kind of control that we've been led to believe. And I'm sure that you and probably most of your listeners are aware of the statistics that the vast majority of people, when they go on diet plans or exercise plans, or even if they do bariatric surgery, regain the weight after a while. Um, They might lose weight in the beginning, but almost everybody regains the weight in the long run. And generally, there's the perception that the problem is in the individual, that maybe they give up on their diet and they're to blame. But what we know from studying all of this stuff physiologically is that that's just not true. We can understand physiologically the mechanisms that are involved in why people regain the weight and that it's not just uh, and that personal control doesn't play that much of a role. So let me give you an example. Let's say somebody goes on a diet and <clears throat> at first they notice that they're losing a lot of weight. Well, we have these internal regulatory systems that are paying attention to what our body weight is. And our body is always trying to keep us in what's called healthy homeostasis, you know, like a, a steady state where it, um, it's at its healthy best. And If you lose too much weight, it triggers mechanisms in your body where it wants to help you to regain the weight. So it's got more protection when you start dieting again and you're not giving your body all the energy that it needs. So what we can see is that when people have been dieting for a while and they've lost weight, that it's going to turn on all kinds of mechanisms where at first they're going to get more hungry because their body's trying to get more energy and get them to gain weight. And what we know is that sometimes people will um, break their diets then because they're getting all of these physiologic feelings that are kind of motivating them, like foods that weren't appealing to them before, now they're feeling desperate for because their body is just kind of bumped up levels of, like for example, it's changed their taste buds so a wider range of foods is more appealing to them. And it increases pleasure sensations It it does all kinds of things to try to get people to eat more. But we also know that there's some people that are fantastic dieters, that even though they're getting all these body signals that are pushing them to eat more, they could still be really good at depriving themselves. And sometimes what happens is the next point along the um, regulation system is your body will just recognize that increasing hunger and appetite isn't being effective and in fact it's a waste of energy because it takes some energy to to do that and it's not resulting in you getting more energy on your body so um, it's not being helpful it's counterproductive so the next thing that could happen is your body could actually turn off your appetite and lots of people have this experience after they've been on a diet for a while they finally hit this point where dieting almost becomes easier that You know, they're not haunted by food all the time. But then what your body could do is it could decide that, well, if I can't get them to take in more calories, then I can tone down the amount of energy I'm spending so that um, they're more conservative, so that they're surviving on less calories. So it might turn down things like temperature regulation so that um, it doesn't spend so much energy there and you're not as effective at doing it might turn down your heart rate a little bit so that you're just a little bit more draggy getting around during the day. And so now, even though you're taking in less calories, your body might be spending so many less calories that it overcompensates. And eating less actually results in you gaining weight because your body's just spending so many fewer calories. So dieting could result in weight gain even when you maintain your diet. And we have a lot of research to support this. So it's a whole myth that all you have to do is just diet well or exercise regularly. Because what we know is that your body's got lots of mechanisms to undermine all of your best efforts. And that helps to explain why the vast majority of people will regain weight regardless of whether or not they go off their diet or exercise program.
1: Mm -hmm. And thank you so much for sharing that. I think that's so fantastic for people to hear. I think, you know, my, I hear that and probably, you know, before I really integrated your work into my life and and really, you know, I heard it and I understood it and then I thought it made sense, but I was still so stuck in – diet culture and our society and the standards of beauty that we have in the the world, that I was still so brainwashed by that, that I couldn't implement it in my life. And I think one of the things was, was that exact piece of work that you shared, you know, that, you know, our weight isn't in our control. That was like the hardest thing for me to get behind because through my eating disorder and through all the years of, um, of dieting, I was like, I couldn't believe that because I was like, no, I did. Like I, I did get down to weight and I saw that. And like I was – like you said, like you were, I was really good at dieting. I was one of those people who like I had the willpower. I had the perfectionism and the control and I wasn't fun to be around and I was like not a cool person at all, but I could do it. And the, the that was the part that it was really difficult for me to understand and to really believe for a while, and then I really understood like oh i I can see these things happening in my body i I can see that I'm freezing all the time, and that my heart rate is lowering and, and all of these other things, you know my lack of a period, like all of these other things happening to me, and you know coming out of that now, I can see that I think it's such a liberating thing to see that our weight isn't in our control and it might be for a period of time but there are so many other factors in your life that that go into that and is it worth it to 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 push that for so long and to not live your quality of life and I think your work is just so important for us thinking like it's great to make your life as a whole really awesome and beautiful not just focusing it all on your body so my my main question to you is going off of that vein of people who are so stuck in diet culture like i was like i just shared and a lot of the people probably listening to this podcast even if they haven't admitted it to themselves or or they're really stuck in more of like the orthorexic vein of this where it's health and wellness focus and they're so focused on health which i know isn't even the main even though health is in in the name of your first book you you've changed kind of even away from that um how do you suggest I share this message with my generation where as health and wellness and diet culture is growing so rapidly and this like war on obesity situation is like has so much airtime how do you suggest we I share this with my generation and and with people that might be of that mindset of, but I can control my weight. Look, I did it last week, you know. How do you suggest getting this message to them when they really want weight loss? Right. Well,
0: first, Katie, I want to just help you to acknowledge just how remarkably articulate you are already in being able to name all of these issues and um, speak your truth And I think that the more we all keep talking about our experiences and see that we're not alone, that um, that, you know, this isn't about individual failure. This is collectively what is happening to everybody who is trying, that there's so many people out there that are wrestling with their weight that have the experience that you're talking about. And what happens is. Individuals tend to blame themselves and not see that they're experiencing something that um, is a cultural problem, right? So, the more people like you just keep, and me, keep articulating that um, this is real, right? That this is, it's not just about individual failure. This is that the end result of dieting for everybody is. That weight regain. Um, And the more we can also help people to see the incredible freedom that comes from giving up on that whole old belief system. And how much, how all of the things that you're looking for through a diet can be so much better achieved through giving up on dieting. Because the whole diet mentality requires us to distrust ourself. It basically is saying that some outside expert has these ideas and rules about what we're supposed to do um, to achieve health or happiness or whatever it is that we're looking for. And it doesn't honor us as an individual and our own embodiment. But the more we can just respect our own experience and recognize that most of us have tried really, really hard to lose weight and The experience we had in the long run defines it, not the short-term experience. And that we already know everything we need to know about dieting from our own experience. That your clients don't need you to tell them, they don't need me to tell them. That they've already tried really, really hard. They've probably done some really crazy things in the name of trying to get healthier or thinner. And what they need to do is own that experience. Instead of feeling like they failed, they need to recognize that, no, their bodies did just what their bodies are supposed to do when you subject it to something that is fighting it. And that their bodies were, doing, were enormously good at actually being able to protect themselves and fight against that external control. And so maybe they can honor that instead recognize that wow you know their bodies can take care of them and so maybe instead of fighting it they can just let their bodies do what they do best and they can pay attention to things like hunger and fullness and watch where that takes them and um, see how it'll help them to feel so much more comfortable in the world. So this honoring your body and giving up on diets can actually be very liberating and fun, and feel so much better. But it's a big leap of faith. If all your life you believe that you can't trust yourself, and so of course you're not going to get there overnight. And there's a learning curve that's going to be involved in it. And you need some patience in getting through that, and learn to kind of tolerate the, um, you know, the the new. Way of being, um, and you know, just have some patience as you learn how to trust yourself again.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people too. You know, it's hard for them to wrap their mind around the fact that their body isn't meant to be at a certain size when they're able to. I know that was the case for me. You know, for for years, I stayed at a size that. Wasn't where I was was probably meant to be, but with enough of my willpower, I was I was able to do that, and I just wished and hoped and prayed that that was my natural weight, um, and then, I so I guess my question is, you know, how do you help people almost mourn the loss of the idea that their their body is not you know, meant to be where they want it to be at. And I think that, you know, really speaks to the standards of beauty and that goes back to society and the thin privilege issue probably. But um, how do you help people, you know, when they're having, when they feel bad about that fact, where they feel bad about the fact that, you know, they're in this body now, but it might not be where they're, where they're meant to be and being okay with gaining weight. Um, because I know I work with a lot of people who, like me, you know, have have come from an eating disorder and maybe have gained some weight, but there's their it's that fear of weight gain, it's that fear of fat that um really speaks with their like cultural biases that they have against fat that they're internalizing. But how do you help people, you know, get over that or not feel so bad about themselves, you know, when as they're gaining weight, their clothes don't fit, or they're triggered by you know comments from people, or whatever.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, it's certainly not easy to just suddenly look in a mirror and think, wow, I look gorgeous. And I don't know that that necessarily needs to be a goal. I think that making little steps along the way is much more valuable. Um, so for example, Sometimes I look down at my legs and I think, my God, aren't they amazing that I've got these things that can help me move across the room so I can get from one place to another. I mean, the human body is just awe-inspiring, all of the things that it does. And that's a very different way of looking at my legs than thinking, oh, those fat thighs are horrible. So we can look at our, we can learn appreciation from our body by um, first learning about appreciating just functionality. And um, that can help us to kind of make peace with ourselves instead of just thinking about our bodies in terms of um, looks and whether or not they meet up with the beauty ideal. And then too, I think we need to challenge this idea that beauty gets to be defined by other people and that that beauty ideal isn't inclusive you know and um we can certainly see too how the beauty ideal is like light-skinned for example and how crazy that is in a world where there is so much diversity you know that that we see lighter skin is more attractive when you know, that there's, there's so many different ways of being in the world. Um, You know, so we can recognize how ridiculous that beauty standard is, that it just doesn't take into consideration real people. Yeah. Um, And, you know, so we need to do that same thing around weight. And I don't think it's ever going to be easy for people to um, accept the fact that We don't live in a fair and respectful world. And it is true that if you're in a thinner body, you do get a lot more respect. Um, But that doesn't. But chasing that thin ideal isn't going to make you a better person. And it's not going to change the world that we live in. The way the world changes is by people embracing difference. And so you get to be one of the heroes then who can role model what it's like to be gorgeous in um, you know, a body that's redefining beauty.
1: Yeah, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. I, I recently was, I don't know if I told you this, but I live in Michigan and I heard or read or something that Michigan is one of the only states that has a law preventing discrimination um Right. For the basis of size of weight. So I thought that that was super cool and hopefully that's something that keeps growing and, and changing through through society. But I guess, you know, my my next question for you then would be, you know, how do you see or want to see this movement growing? Because right now, you know, it's relatively really small in comparison with the messages of weight loss and dieting and restriction, you know, I feel like that's everywhere and growing so rapidly. So how do you – and I think, you know, probably with that growing, this will grow as well because, uh, you know, it's kind of like that stuff is a stepping stone to this stuff for a lot of people. But, you know, how do you plan – to grow this message where would you like to see health at every size in your work in say say 10 years and you know and what can i do or you know not to make this all about me but what can all of us listening who resonate with this do to help get this message to everyone who needs it and help make it mainstream and help people hear it and take it seriously
0: hmm. well i think that one of the weaknesses of the movement to date has been that as people are moving more towards body positivity, it's been basically a privileged white woman's movement. And um, the and the issues that have been predominantly of concern have been trying to help people to dump the diet mentality and to adopt things like intuitive eating, which of course is very valuable. But um, it doesn't touch on like, for For somebody who struggles to get enough food to eat, that's not the issue that's Mm going to help them to become more embodied, right? And so I think that the issues that we've, we've raised to date in the whole weight debate have been issues that are very much about privilege and that the more we expand this to a movement about respecting bodies so that it's not just a white woman's movement, but it's about just respecting all we are, you know, our race, our sexual orientation, our gender orientation, all of those issues that help to make us who we are. And, you know, acknowledging diversity and taking away the power dynamics that are involved in um, things like racism and homophobia and um, gender bias and, you know, issues that the more inclusive we become in the movement, that is, um, that's where we gain our strength. That right now, it's, it's just become more of an academic debate among people of privilege. And the more we start making it more inclusive, that's where our power is. And I think you noted in the beginning that that's the direction that my work has been changing and that's why my second book was called body respect and trying to broaden the picture
1: how do you advise or see us getting to make this more inclusive and and how do you see us really getting the message out there in that way
0: well um so for example in the past the message was always um, if you want to solve health issues, you're supposed to teach people how to eat and how to exercise. And we know that all of me- all of those messages, like eat well, exercise more, tend to benefit people who are wealthier much more than they benefit um, people who are struggling economically or are lower down on the social status scale. So we need to reframe our messages so that we take into consideration people's experience. So rather than being prescriptive and coming up with ideas about what people are supposed to do, we need to make the health movement more about respecting people's embodied experience um, and helping them to figure out how to negotiate the world in the body that they have. Right. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if somebody comes to a dietitian and asks the dietitian, you know, what's a better thing to feed my kid, French fries or an apple? The knee jerk response is usually to think an apple. Right. But for someone um, who doesn't have the economic means, um, uh, French fries might give them more calories and be a healthier choice for them. Right. Mm-hmm. And so. What we have to do is just start from a person's experience and look at, in the context of their lives, what options work best for them. So it's about honoring people's experiences and starting from there, rather than coming up with um, prescriptions that we're supposed to tell people to do. And that's how we become inclusive, is that... We put the power back in the individual.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for explaining that. That's that's fascinating and, and really important. Um, something that you know I I would love to touch on with you is actually talking about food a bit and how you know, you teach that we all know exactly what's best for us to eat based on on how we feel and, and really kind of the intuitive eating model. But I, w- I would love it if you could discuss like sugar specifically and how there, there's so much conversation about people quitting sugar and um, your experience in with every body being different and not even just sugar, but cutting out and restricting different food groups. There's all this hype and different types of diets out there all the time. And I would love if you could talk about kind of what that, what that does, the the how the negatives of that kind of outweigh the positives there on what it does to our health and our, our mental health specifically.
0: Sure. Well, first, I think it's important to acknowledge that There's tons of reasons that we eat that have nothing to do with physical nourishment. Um, You know, we eat for social reasons, for example. It's a way of bonding with other people. Like a birthday party becomes so much more meaningful if you can celebrate and eat cake with with everybody. Right? And that's an important part of living, is participating in that whole social world. And food is a really, really important part of our culture. And I think, too, it's important to recognize that the fact that we get pleasure from eating is not an accident. I mean, we're biologically rigged to get pleasure because if we didn't get pleasure, we wouldn't eat and our species would die off. That's why pleasure is also hooked up with things like sex, Um, because, again, you know, if sex weren't pleasurable, we wouldn't do it and the species would die off. Mm -hmm. So pleasure is meant to support us in living well and if we don't get it um then we're not it it's not good for us
1: um
0: and so we can't take that out of the equation right so if you set up um something like sugar like a rule that sugar is bad and you need to stay away that's wiping out a pretty important part part of pleasure and people are going to end up feeling unfulfilled and that's going to play out in some way it's certainly going to play out in well-being and health but on the other hand what we know from research is that sure while sugar in um, in excess can be damaging and we can see some of the ways that it might participate in for example um, increased risk for diabetes we also know that 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 um, in moderation sugar doesn't pose any kind of a problem so we can find balance in our world where we can get the pleasure that we need from sugar without the negative stuff and that's going to support us in eating well but when we take pleasure out of the equation we're going to find that we're going to feel very unfulfilled and that's going to play out in our health
1: i i want, i have a couple of follow-ups on that because this, this particular sugar conversation is very close to me and a lot of people listening, I I feel as well. And I know, you know, one of the arguments to that is, well, I, I just honestly don't, don't want it. Or I will, you know, after you cut out sugar completely, the, the, the mindset is, well, after a while you stop wanting it and you're at the birthday party and the cake just doesn't even appeal to you at all but I think the the point with that is that you're we have so few sensationary pleasures in our lives as humans and to completely cut out one of them um, with food is is sort of sad so do you think that that is what will happen when you after because there's a lot of people with addictive personalities who are just like you know I can't do the moderation I am an abstainer you know so they'll just choose to abstain from sugar or you know people do with all sorts of food groups but I think sugar is kind of the main one um, and that people do that with and so do you think that that is a valid thing that if you cut it out that it will be something that just doesn't even appeal to you at all and that's valid or you're denying yourself one of our human pleasures
0: Yeah, I absolutely don't buy that idea that um, some people need to abstain completely or they'll be vulnerable. Um, I think that might be true in things like um, alcohol for some people, Mm -hmm. Um, but food is very different. Um, You could survive without alcohol. You can't survive without food. And it it sets your body up very differently. And I think that one of the reasons why a lot of people feel like they're out of control around sugar is because they've denied it to themselves for so long that when they do give themselves permission, um, it opens the floodgates. And what we see in research, and this has actually been very well tested in research, is that the more you give yourself permission to actually eat, um, then you're not deprived anymore. And it's easier to say no. So um, and I know that this can be kind of scary, but I've actually tested this out in the in a research study that I conducted with people, where we had people um, think about the foods that they were always so scared of that they would binge on. Um, For me, it was ice cream. And to see what it's like to give themselves permission to eat ice cream whenever they wanted, but to do it mindfully and to pay attention to how much they were appreciating it and to know that they could eat it any as long as they were, they were enjoying it. And what people found was that when they gave up the deprivation and the idea that ice cream was bad, that after a while they ate the ice cream and it stopped having power over them. Because they realized I could stop now and tomorrow if I want some more ice cream, there's still some in the freezer. Um, So I don't have to eat it all right now. And what we found was that people could come to a sense of comfort around it and being able to appreciate it more. And, you know, we did a lot of fun experiments around that to help people to learn about appreciation. And I'll give you an example of... Um, something that we did in our groups that was really quite powerful for people. Um, And it was helping them to understand their bodies a little bit better physiologically. Um, I asked people um, if we could come to something that we could agree on that all of us really loved and thought that it was a little bit um, scary to eat. That was one of those foods that we would eat out of control. And the thing that we all agreed on was chocolate. And so I brought in chocolate truffles, some really delicious chocolate truffles and I had everybody in the group take one and I asked them all to take a small bite and to let it melt in their mouths and to notice all of the sensations and how much they were appreciating it and um, people did that and paid attention for a while and then after a minute or two I said now take another small bite and again let it melt in your mouth and notice all the sensations and we kept doing that again and again. And what became clear to everybody was that after a few bites, for a lot of people it was after the third bite, that sure the chocolate still tasted good, but it didn't taste as fantastic. And what they were noticing was um, what the scientists called negative alesthesia, where your taste buds tone down after they've gotten the initial flavor hit, so that the food doesn't taste nearly as good. Now yes, it still tastes good, but basically what your body is doing is it's not giving you as strong of a reward because it's gotten some of its calorie needs met, so it's telling you to tone down a little bit. So the more people can practice mindful eating, the more you recognize that your body gives you all kinds of great clues to help you to eat well, and that pleasure is a huge part of all of this. And so if you can eat food when it's maximally pleasurable to you, that basically supports you eating well because in this example you'll end up eating less sugar at once and what we know is that when you eat sugar in smaller doses then your body doesn't release a lot of insulin and that tends to be really healthy for you. On the other hand if you don't pay attention to negative allesthesia and you know you you keep eating a lot of sugar at once then you're more likely to trigger a high insulin response and some of the disease processes that could follow from that. So we could see how your body is very invested in helping you to eat a healthy amount, and it rewards you through pleasure. So when you start to reframe it this way, you could find that there's all kinds of great techniques that help to support you in eating right amounts and not eating out of control.
1: Dr. Bacon, that is so Amazing, and I'm so glad that you share that. You just helped a bunch of people by telling that story, and it's so true. Like I think about this in my life when I'm like, oh, I'm really you know hungry for something sweet, and then I'm like, because of um conditioning and and things that I've read and et cetera, et cetera, I will be like, oh, I'll I'll have you know. An avocado, or some healthy fat, or something else, and then I'll have that. But I'll still kind of wish that I had had the other thing because, and I could have just been done after after that. You know, we we sometimes people who have been dieting for a long time, or not intuitively eating, or, or not listening to their bodies, and giving themselves that pleasure that they crave or finding it through a different way have to kind of relearn those skills of like, oh, actually listen to it. It's Our bodies are so smart, and so that was just so helpful. Thank you so much for sharing that. I just want to ask you the final question um, that I ask everyone that comes on the show. So as you know, the name of my podcast and the name of – my blog is the wellness wonderland. So when I ask you that to live in a wellness wonderland, what does that mean to you? What comes up?
2: Ah.
0: Boy, you know, I think the first thing that comes up for me when I think about um, wellness is being surrounded by people I love and who kind of honor and respect me you know being in a safe place where it's okay to just be me so community is what it's all about and i think it's community that helps most around establishing well-being and good health and um, happiness
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for that answer and everything else you shared. And I know this was your sixth interview of the day. So I'm so honored that you were here. And I really appreciate everything you shared.
0: Oh, it's very sweet. It was really wonderful to talk to you, Katie. Thank you.
1: All right. So I am really excited that I have Anne-Sophie Reinhardt here. And She is so cool, and I'm so excited to get to know you more. So tell us about where you are in the world, what you do, and how you came to where you are. Yeah. So I am from Germany and currently
2: do live in Germany, too. I've been all over the world, but I came back here um, because of a son, of my son, that um, he's two years old now. And when I was pregnant, I was like, you know, where... Where do I go? Um, and I wanted to be around family, so I'm back in Germany, oh. although my heart, my heart is still in New York, but you know, when you have a child, things change.
1: Um,
2: How long have you been in New York? I li- well, I only lived there for six months, but I traveled there like four to five times a year, every oh, wow. year, yeah, it was, it's like, it's my, it's my place, right, yeah. Um, but it's—I don't know if it's the perfect place to raise a child. So right now I live closer to nature, and my parents are around. So,
1: nice.
2: um, you know, family, and he has a lot of a lot of support other than just me, good. <laughs> which is good for me too. Yeah. Um, and I basically what I do is I help women get back their respect for their bodies and stop feeling ashamed for having a body, stop feeling guilty for eating, and just really learn to love themselves for who they are and for how they look, right? Instead of always feeling like they're inadequate, instead of always wanting to be someone else, instead of always being on a diet or restricting in some kind of way and just obsessing over food in their bodies.
1: And I've Woohoo! been doing this.
2: So yes, great work. <laughs> I know, right? It's it's really important. It really is where my where my heart is, and where um, I just put everything into it because I think it is so important in this world we live in.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. So, how I'm assuming that you have a personal story with that that got you to to do this work? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, so not a lot of people just do it without connecting with it personally I feel like
2: yeah and I think you know when you actually have been through it it adds a whole another level right to this work mm-hmm. so I I struggled with food for most of my childhood teenage years and then my early 20s um, and I just you know was I was anorexic at one point then I gained a lot of weight in a short amount of time and was just binging all the time and then I went back to being really really thin and it was just always an up and down but I was fighting food every day I was fighting my body every day and I was just never ever happy with how I looked and who I was and it basically destroyed my life I didn't have any friends anymore I didn't I was a very creative child and very outgoing and I was you know just staying in my room basically working out and not eating for for most of these years that are so important and so when I recovered, I, you know, just really wanted to make a difference in this world and really share what I've learned through <laughs> my my struggle and then healing myself with others. And so, yeah, I made it my profession.
1: That's so cool. So what were some of those things that you did to finally stop fighting food and shift out of this? And do you use those same kind of tools and tactics to help women now? very interesting so when I when I you know started this
2: journey there, I didn't know that coaching existed or something like that right I didn't have a lot of tools I went through traditional quote unquote treatment and it didn't really help me it didn't really help me because it was just all about food right you eat or you don't and so I went out and I just learned about so much more, right? How our mind and how how our body are, are connected, and our, our emotions, how important they are. And I learned so much about myself and who I truly was, and what I was scared of, and why I was restricting or binge eating and, and doing all of these behaviors. And that is definitely stuff that I, you know, talk about with my with my clients, that I coach my clients on. So first of all, what was really important for me was why was I doing this, right? What was what was I trying to to accomplish with not eating or eating too much and it was just I had a very destructive relationship with my brother and so I was just trying to control one thing that I could control and that was food in my body so that for me was just eye-opening in that way and so I figured out why and then I really worked on my self-esteem and on my thoughts right because my thoughts were just all about food and how food is good and bad and you know me believing I'm not good enough if I'm not thin or that you know I have to have the perfect body in order to be seen in order to be worthy in order to even just have a job or something like that right and it was just so much fear and I really worked on the fear and I really didn't work so much on the food and on the eating aspect sure it was part of it but I I really just had to dig in more into what was really going on on, underneath all of that and that is what I do with my clients for sure
1: Mm, that's amazing so what is like a takeaway that someone who's listening right now that might be struggling with food or their body that is unique to kind of the work that you do, something that they could do or think about today right now? Go on. So it's, you know, obviously we ask this question a lot, but why,
2: why are you doing what you're doing, right? What is it substituting? So really just figure that out. I think that is the biggest one. If you don't know, the reason behind all of that and sometimes it takes some digging then you will never really fully heal right you can you can lose weight or you can you know stop your behaviors for a while but it will always come back it will Mm -hmm. always come back so really figure out you know are you in a destructive relationship Uh, did you have stuff happen in the past are you really insecure is your life too good and you know you're trying to sabotage yourself by having this really toxic relationship with food but just get really clear on that and that might be painful and then don't run away right Mm -hmm. once you have the answer don't don't run away and shut down completely because that is what we tend to do too um and instead be compassionate you know just be really kind and loving towards yourself get help if you need or if you want to but um just open your eyes. I think that's, that's the biggest thing. right. And then once you have that, you can begin to to work on whatever it is that you need to heal.
1: Mm, That's so that's such good advice. So when you're having a bad body image moment or day, or your client is or someone you're working with, what what do you tell yourself? How do you shift out of that? How do you not let it turn into, you know, a week of feeling bad about yourself for longer
2: yeah so I still have you know the bad the fat days right I do mm-hmm. have them um and sometimes it happens in a split second right where one minute I'm fine and the next I'm like oh god and I you know first of all I really I've learned to recognize it <laughs> to really be aware of it you know whereas five or five years ago I would have stayed in that and not even known what I was doing and now I realize it I recognize it and now I know that it's not really about my body so I just tune in and I'm like what's really going on here am I stressed am I tired what's annoying me sometimes really I cannot find anything and sometimes it's like aha this is what it is right so Mm -hmm. I'm really I'm trying to avoid something I'm trying to avoid a conversation or a situation so let me really work on that instead of blaming my body for what's wrong and when I don't find anything I really just allow myself to feel it for 10 minutes and then I snap out of it by doing something different, but either writing, journaling or playing with my son or going outside or sometimes just watching TV to distract myself. Yeah. Or I just accept, accept that this is what it is in this moment. I just feel like it and I move on with my life. So I think that, you know, not making such a big deal out of it sometimes helps too. where – you know, oftentimes it feels like, okay, I really have to figure this out. I really have to figure out right now why I'm doing this. That adds a lot of pressure to you, but sometimes it just is, right? And we, we really don't know why we feel that way, but it's never about having gained weight in the last
1: five seconds or so. Right, right, right. Oh, it's such good, such good advice. So important. So one thing I'm curious about before I let you go, you're in Germany and you've been in New York. Do you find differences with how women perceive their bodies and how they eat and how their relationships with food are mm-hmm. and not just women, I guess people in general from New York or America to Germany?
2: So what I find is that Americans are more extreme, right? In in all of, in everything most of the time. So it's it's more Out there it's more extreme even but you know the issues are kind of the same so women struggle here just as much as they struggle in the in the US I think Germans are more silent about it we don't really talk about it all that much there's still way more shame than even in in, in the US Um, but the struggles are there and it's just in the US it's it's amplified in some way Mm -hmm. Um, so that is that is what I found but yeah unfortunately really we all struggle
1: yeah Yeah, it's so fascinating. So anyway, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. So can you tell people where they can find you, how they can work with you? I'll put all the links to your website and your social media and the show notes, but anything specific that you want to call out if anything we talked about resonated with people? Sure. So my website is over at us and
2: you you know you will put the links in the in the show notes. Okay. And um, go over to Facebook and, jo- and join Escape Diet Prison, which is a free Facebook group where we talk about these things and support each other and really have each other's back. It's just for women, and it's a great great group that you know focuses on respecting your body instead of shaming it. And if you want to work with me, you know there are plenty of offers on my website. I do one on one coaching. And um, yeah, just shoot me an email or click the link on the website to schedule a call and
1: we'll talk. Cool. Amazing. Thank you so much for being here. You're awesome.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: All right, guys, there you have it. This was a very dense, very important episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Next week on the podcast, we are going to be lightening the mood by having on someone who is really, really awesome. She is a comedian, Beth Stelling. So get really excited for that. I love her. I think she's amazing. And I'm really excited for you to hear the conversation. So I will talk to you guys next week. And let it out.